What's up, Pastor Kevin Davis here, Woodland Fringe Church. Hey, we're doing open worship today, so I'm going to be uh, submitting a sermon from the vault, but you're going to get a two-for-one deal, kind of. wanted to make the listening crowd aware that we now have a YouTube page. We used to upload our sermons to Facebook, but because of slow internet, it would sometimes drop, and so I just decided to start recording all together onto a phone and then uploading it later to YouTube. So I uploaded the last few Facebook sermons, and then the last two Sundays they've been on YouTube. So because we're having a open worship this coming Sunday, which is actually today when you're listening to this, I'm just going to upload an old, old sermon here, and I'm going to upload an old sermon that's already on our podcast feeds and already on our Facebook to YouTube, and just in case if there's a new YouTube crowd that hasn't been following on Facebook. So you can uh, just find us. I'm sure if you look up Woodland Friends Church, you should see our green, fancy, um, uh, you know, drop cap ornamental W logo with Woodland Friends Church. And there's a few sermons already on there for you. And so you can tune in there. Thanks for tuning in here. And hey, just a heads up, the the next time you'll probably hear from me is not until August. We just have a few different Sundays coming up. I'm undecided on if I'll try to keep up the feeds with uh, fresh kind of episodes from the vault or just next time you hear and see from us is in August. Hey, thanks for tuning in every Sunday. We're going to continue in Mark chapter 10. With all that being said, we come across a very peculiar passage of scripture during this fall festival, and I pray that God speaks to you through it. Maybe he's had some of you in mind. It's primarily what Bibles will say about divorce. And I feel inclined, first of all, to confess my feelings of inadequacy and bias that I might have in preaching this. I feel I've been true to God's leading. I've actually conferred with a few pastors and say, does this sound right? By the leading of the Holy Spirit, I know you can discern what you hear, but the fact remains is that if some ministers would have had their way with one of my parents concerning this very topic, I likely would not have existed, (laughs) period. So I want you to see today that while God has a high standard for humanity, humanity has a large propensity for sin. And thankfully, God is a gracious redeemer, not a careless permitter, but a gracious redeemer. With that being said, please stand in honor of reading the Lord's word together this morning. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12 of Mark chapter 10. And he, that is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we enter into this topic, a lot of us one way or another affected by this very much. So it's hard to hear these words. It's tense. We pray for your spirit of comfort to come over us as you preach to us and speak to us. Father, would you get me out of the way? Would you say what you would desire? Would we respond accordingly, trusting you, listening to your voice, knowing that you speak to us from a heart of love, Father, and a grace gracious Father, an understanding Father that sympathizes with us in every matter, surely this one as well. We ask and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, in whom we love and love to serve. Amen. You may be seated. Whether you go to church or not, whether you're a believer or not, insider, outsider, we're very selfish, self-centered people. <laughs> and it's tricky because selfishness and self-centeredness comes in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's, it's very apparent with an arrogant attitude, narcissistic. But sometimes it comes at what first appears to be good, and then it turns out it's not. And this is religious people. People who say, here's what God says and here's where you are wrong. And they leave out important parts. If they were to admit to it, it would reveal their selfishness. And that is, here's what I think God says, but I've yet to convene with him. <laughs> and here's where you're wrong. And conveniently, I'm not wrong because I'm keeping all the rules where you fail. How do I know this so well? <laughs> I'm often a selfish religious person that is on a painful journey of repentance. So while church outsiders might struggle with self-absorption and church insiders often struggle with church or excuse me self-absorption in a more disguised way, God on the other hand is on a very outlandish mission. Jesus is. And unlike many religious people and sinners, Jesus is on a mission of selflessness. His focus is completely foreign to many of us. His focus, where we're at in the book, is his focus is on a place called Jerusalem. And it's such a bizarre, outlandish focus because of what he intends to do there. He's prophesied twice, at least, so far, recorded in Mark that he's going to be handed over to betrayers and murderers, and he will suffer brutally and terribly. Yet, he still goes. He's not dodging it. He's not trying to change it. That's where he's headed. We see this in Mark 10, and it says, And he left there, which according to Mark's last geographical identification, it's a place called Capernaum, and it's been the base of operations, as it were, for Jesus and his ministry, for mostly what seems to be the entirety of their ministry thus far in Mark. So this is the last time before Jesus' death that he was there, 
And he's traveling south towards Jerusalem. And he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. We've discussed this before, that Jesus' primary purpose is teaching. Months ago, probably January or February, that's how long we've been in this book, we saw this vivid illustration in Mark 1 where Peter and a few of the disciples caught glimpses of Jesus exercising demons and healing people. And I, I feel like they kind of set up a lemonade stand and say, okay, all who want healing and, and demon exorcism, come here. And Jesus is up all night healing people, exercising demons. So Jesus gets up early the next morning, likely in the twilight, and he goes away. Finally, Peter and the disciples show up. They look for him, and Jesus says to them, let's go on to the next towns so I can preach. And he says, for that is why I came out. Not to heal, not to be a primary miracle worker. Jesus has an emphasis on teaching. Because Jesus is revealing God to humanity in more ways than one. Next in the story, back in Mark 10, it's very important that we see what I will call foreboding triggers that veteran readers of Mark should pick up on, and that is, and Pharisees came up, and in order to test him. Make no mistake, Mark, as he writes this book, likely expects readers by this time to get a sour taste in their mouth and give the original theater boo and a good roll of the eyes as an, oh great, it's these guys, what are they up to? Pharisees have never been good guys in this book. They're always objecting to every move of Jesus. Mark 3, 6 informed us that they're currently conspiring with another sect of Jews called the Herodians to destroy Jesus. So every question, every test that they pull on Jesus, it is all ill intent. The last test in Mark 8, verse 11, was worded in such a way in the original language to invoke this imagery of a military pulling rank and opposing Jesus. It was so heated that in Mark 8, verse 15, Jesus basically said to his disciples, don't be like the Pharisees. And so we see that nothing is changing as in Mark 10.2. It says, And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is a loaded question. The Pharisees are there with guns, and they're firing rounds. Let me just give you a contemporary picture today. Suppose a pastor is getting notoriety. He's attracting a large crowd from all spectrums politically. The pastor is staying true to scripture, and then a religious guy, probably me, <laughs> approaches the pastor, puts him on the spot in the middle of a crowd full of people from all political spectrums, all backgrounds, all possibly babes in Christ, as in they haven't been in the Bible long. They could or could not be committed to the church or committed to Jesus. Nevertheless, I put the pastor on the spot and I ask him, is homosexuality a sin or not? So do you feel the tension? You feel the gravitas of that question? For the Pharisees, it's just a few words, but it's loaded and weighty, and it has implications. Political friction. 
And there are Jews out there who have deeply emotional and stringent opinions on this matter of divorce, as it is today as well. Now, I know some of us conservatives might say, so what? Jesus answers the question. The baby Christians who have unbiblical ideas about this issue just need to put their big boy pants on and submit to Jesus or get out. And what I'm getting at is that it's not so much, oh, poor Jesus just has to answer this question publicly and do detriment to his reputation. What I'm getting at is the motive of the Pharisees. The motive of the Pharisees. Regardless or not, if the question needs to be answered, the motive of the Pharisees is not a motive for clarity and discernment on the issue. It's a motive to do political and public detriment to the reputation of Jesus. The divorce issue was a big issue of that day as it is in our culture. And I'm not saying that every church handles divorce correctly, but first century Roman Empire people were also getting divorces left and right. And the Jews, like different sects of Christians today, had different views concerning divorce. One school of Jewish thought, called the Shammai, a conservative stance likely shared by the Pharisees, they say only on the grounds of adultery may a man divorce his wife. A more liberal sect, called the Hillel, and I'm not going to you know, test you on these terms, so don't worry. <laughs> but they likely are shared with another group of Jews called the Herodians. They state basically, a man can divorce his wife on anything he de- deems divorceable over. Whether it be Sunday's night dinner tasted bad, that was a literal stipulation if, they, if she made an unfavorable dish. <clears throat> to if the man just happened to realize, oh, I like another girl more. <laughs> whatever, just write it up and send her on her way. Now, the Pharisees, being very conservative, probably didn't like the latter view. And in fact, as Matthew tells this exact same story in Matthew 19, the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? As in, what do you say about these Herodians or the Hillel group, that view. And I want to bring up the Herodians because they are named for their allegiance to King Herod. And if you recall back in Mark 6, Herod chopped one of Jesus' friends' heads off. His name was John the Baptist. And he did it primarily because John the Baptist was vocally opposed to what Herod did, which is Herod divorced his wife and married his niece. So it could be that the Pharisees were trying to corner Jesus on something that both the Herodians and the Pharisees could hate him for, for different reasons. The Pharisees would hate Jesus' response if he seemed to interpret the scripture liberally, and the Herodians would hate him if he made a statement that opposed Herod, like John the Baptist did. So you see how loaded this question is. Jesus is getting cornered into a trap. But... These were both considered, in some ways, orthodox views. So no divorce except for cases of adultery or divorce for any unfavorable action the husband deemed necessary. And like differing of opinions over matters today in church and Christian orthodoxy, yes, they debated this, but these were both views perpetuated by different adherents of the Jewish religion. Jesus has a very novel idea. 
very novel idea. And when he answers the Pharisees' question, he says, he answered them, what did Moses command you, right? Let me bring you back to the Bible. Hmm, what does it say? Then they said, the Pharisees said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That's what the Pharisees said that the Bible said. The passage that they get that from, the very crux of this debate is in Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is what the Shammai school of conservatives, no divorce except sexual adultery, and the Hillel school of liberals, divorce over everything from living room drapes, they don't agree on it, whatever, you know. This is the text that they debate over. They love these verses that articulates both forms of their views on divorce. So let's take a look at it ourselves. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, verse 2, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring a sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So if we look at verse 1, it would seem to be a liberal view. It says, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency. Right? So the schools are getting out their lexicons, concordances, dictionaries, saying some indecency, is that as general and liberal as it sounds? And they're searching. And furthermore, this passage makes the stipulation that once a divorce happens, the guy better be sure he wants to divorce her for good, because even if the next spouse of the ex-wife dies or divorces him, her, the first guy cannot remarry his ex-wife. So no remarriage. And so the Pharisees give their favorite spot of this passage to Jesus and say, well, you know, Moses said, sure, write a certificate, send her away with it. So that's what the Bible says. How do you interpret it, Jesus? And this is very important. Because what the Bible says and how we interpret it can be two very different things. See, the Pharisees, the religious people, they come at it with a selfish desire of performance. This happens for Christians. Okay, this happens with me quite often. <laughs> and here's what it really boils down to. I want to have the Bible down. I want to do everything it says. God gave me a new heart and a Holy Spirit to do what the Bible says. So I'm going to be the best Christian I can be, and I will be an example. And we kind of give ourselves these pep talks until we think, like a little kid doing PE, we're just performing, expecting to be graded. We want to be student of the month. And it's very self-centered. It's very, look at what I can do. It's very, I'm better than you. I did my studying. I got it nailed down. And it's very not Jesus. It's very not Jesus. The Pharisees whip out the Bible. They point to the passage. Oh, come on, Jesus. Of course, we know the Deuteronomy 24 text. We've done our homework. We're past that. We know the same passages you do. We're just wanting to hear your take on it. Why? So we can grade you. 
So we can put you in our box of theology, we can label you, and we can say, hey, listen to how Jesus interprets this passage. Well, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. He wrote you this commandment. The Pharisees see the passage as a bullet list of outs. Deuteronomy 24, verse 2 and verse 4, the Pharisees, they're listing possible grounds of divorce. As one commentary of mine stated, it's like being granted a bank loan and asking under what conditions could they be absolved from paying it. The Pharisees want their bullet list. They want their list of outs. How can I, how can I get out of this without getting in trouble? Jesus is basically saying you're taking the wrong approach. This is a text of concession, not one of intention. It's a text that takes into account humanity's failure, not God's. It goes back to interpreting Scripture. The Pharisee interprets Deuteronomy 24 as, oh, divorce is applicable here, here, and here. And Jesus turns to this table and he says it's a concession. Because humanity is not perfect. Humanity has hard hearts. And then Jesus is going to move into a discussion that I view it as a way of giving a question to the Pharisees. That is, divorce is a concession because have you considered the fact that in a perfect world where everything is still Genesis 1 prior to the fall, good, that God would not even dream or fathom divorce. It wouldn't even exist. Marriage is an institution created by God. Divorce is not. Look at what Jesus says. He says, but from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, shall, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Divorce is not God's divine intention. Marriage is. And Jesus then takes the Pharisees to a place that perhaps they haven't considered looking at. Because again, they're looking at divorce, and they're looking at the Bible as, what can I get away with? Where is divorce right? Where is it wrong? Well, Jesus' approach is, what is God's intention? And what does God say about marriage? It's very important to nail this down right now. Jesus' discussion is about what? <laughs> marriage. Need you to get on board with me. Let's maybe even say this together. Jesus is talking about marriage. Let's go. Jesus is talking about marriage. <laughs> What's the first thing that Jesus says? But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This is how big of a deal marriage is. Jesus doesn't go to Moses and the law. He doesn't go to the government that's in front of him or ahead of him. He doesn't do the postmodern human thing and say, well, I think. Jesus says it rather simply, in the beginning of creation, which is kind of an epic proportion. In the beginning of creation, God made. See how big of a deal marriage is. It's something made from the beginning of the world where God is intrinsically and intimately involved. Also, it says God made them male and female. 
Jesus gives the standard, the intention. The perfect world marriage begins with a God-created male and female. Then what? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So how many men and women are involved? One of each sex. Jesus says, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Our culture generally, and also in Romanized first century culture, it's a very radical view of marriage, what Jesus is saying. First, let's talk about our culture. Beyond the statements that Jesus gives to gender identity issues and sexual preferences, Jesus is talking about the intentions and the motives for each person's marrying. Let me give you an example. Statistics are high in marriages for really just two people trying to do life together. It's really roommates and not marriage. There are two sets of social circles, one for the husband, one for the wife. There are, in some cases, two bedrooms in the house. There are two beds in the bedroom. There are two bathrooms, the man's and the wife's. There might be two check accounts, one for the man to spend money and one for the wife to save it. I mean, uh, <laughs> they might agree on who buys the groceries at any given day. There are two cars. The man drives his car or truck and the wife drives hers. And it's an inconvenience when one has to drive the other. Two careers at times. And it's hard for one to sacrifice for the other. And boy, it's a drastic inconvenience when the husband gets the opportunity for a raise and they got to move, but the wife has a really good job. And so the Herodians would say, well, that's unfavorable and indecent, and hey, you two tried it, but there are other problems, just get a divorce. And instead of taking a pharisaical approach, instead of Jesus saying, that's wrong, I told you so, that's wrong, I told you so, Jesus says, here's what right looks like. And he takes it right out of the scripture, and he doesn't even have to sell it. Because it's such a beautiful picture. God the entire, of the entire universe, who made the heavens and the earth and the fullness thereof, intimately and personally knit together. You in the womb of your parents, and you in the womb of your parents. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He didn't make a mistake when he made you. The way he came out is the way he made you. There is a reason for who you are and where you were born and who you were born to be. And then much like how Jesus, God in the flesh, leaves the security and the comfort of his throne in heaven. And he goes out into the world, the painful and the sinful and the dangerous world, and he holds fast to his bride, the church. And he shows it at the beginning that he's not headed to a place of comfort. He's headed, his face is headed towards Jerusalem to forever purchase his wife, by the cost of his blood. So does the husband leave the comfort and the decency and the security of his home and his parents, and he goes out to the world and he does what? He begins to create a place of security and comfort, and he begins to sacrifice his time and his treasure and his talent to hold fast to his wife, providing a place of comfort and security, and his focus is not under the dominion of his parents, but now it is to the allegiance and the pursuit of his wife. And then what's more amazing is that the two beings that God created in two separate rooms, wombs, these beings have grown and come together, and Jesus says they've become one flesh. 
one flesh, one house, one bedroom, one social circle that both the husband and wife know, maybe one bank account because they trust each other with the money, and they are after the same things. Christy and I got a devotional right after we got married, and one of the first things it asked, so we were just newlyweds, the devotion asked, what is your purpose and your mission as a couple, as a family? Something I never considered. What is your purpose and your mission? You, you two have come together for what? Well, just to make babies and, and have a legacy of family. Or is there something deeper that God has in mind whenever the two become one flesh? Because when Jesus takes his bride to church, their mission is to get the gospel to all people. So what is our mission? Under one God. This is radical. It's radical in the old Jewish and the Roman sense, too, because marriage oftentimes is for babies and property. Women were traded like commodities. A woman's power was completely dependent and relational to either her father, her husband, or her son. And Jesus says, no, men and women are equal. They are in this together. And in fact, we see in his discussion with the disciples that Jesus ascribes dignity and equality to the woman more blatantly. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, this isn't very uplifting, because in a divorce, he says both are guilty of sin. (laughs) Men can't leave women, women can't leave men, both are guilty if they leave one another. Why? Because it's God's divine intention to create marriage, It's humanity's failure and concession that divorce even needs to exist. Thus, we go back to verse 9, and Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I want you to see the diversion here. God has made man and woman equal in marriage. Unlike the old archaic where man was in charge of the union, in charge of what happens with the union and the ins and the outs and everything concerning the union, God has now made men and women equal. Not now. That's what he made to begin with. Equal in what, though? Equal in sin. Equal in sin. He says they're both guilty in cases of dissolution. They're both not in charge of the union, but they're both guilty. But who is in charge of the union? Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together. Marriage is a gift and a plan of God. Divorce is a human tragic reality. God has a plan for men and women created in the womb. A plan for men to leave their parents and hold fast to a wife. A plan for two to enjoy the union into one. He has a plan. Now, I don't want you, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to, here's a verb that I made this week, I don't want you to pharisaicalize this text. What I'm saying is don't do what the Pharisees did to Deuteronomy 24. Don't do that to Mark 10 or Matthew 19 and say, okay, so the concession is on adultery. That's when divorce is permitted. Because you're missing the picture. This is the picture that God's intention for those who would be married is marriage, not divorce. Now, I say for those who would be married, because the Bible, especially as illustrated by Jesus himself, gives equal dignity, equal value, and equal worth to singles. (laughs) One of the prevailing idols of Christianity is the daddy and the mommy and the four kids in the van. Jesus was single. 
1 Corinthians 7 says some are to take after Jesus and be single all their lives. And what does that mean? It means that they are a citizen and a saint in the kingdom of God. They share equal dignity, equal value, equal respect, equal reverence, equal enjoyment, and the like, as a married person would as well. A few conclusions or observations. First of all, Jesus is talking about the beauty of marriage here, not the necessity or the concession of divorce. Let me illustrate something for you. God's divine institution is married, not divorce. God's intent, God's original intent is life, not death. God's original intent is harmony, peace, friendship, not chaos, war, and strife. God's original intent is justice and equity, not injustice and unfairness. You see in that illustration God's intent, but what's the problem? All of the others exist. Death exists, chaos, war, strife, injustice, unfairness, they all exist. Why do they exist? Because humanity and sin exists. God's intent is marriage, humanity's sin is divorce. Jesus says, what God has brought together, let no one tear apart. So what does he mean? That it's an unforgivable sin when somebody does tear it apart? No. Just as well, Jesus could say, what God made, let no one destroy. But how many abortions happen by women who later on in life regret it? They come to Jesus, they feel remorse over the loss of a baby that they murdered. How many murderers take lives and then feel remorse later? Jesus could say, what a man takes for his earnings, let no one steal. That's basically one of the commandments of God. Yet elsewhere, Jesus gives a parable in which one person cannot repay someone, and Jesus says that the master should disforgive him of his loans. My point is, is let's not be pharisaical in our approach of Mark 10, 1 through 12. Let's let Jesus in on our interpretation and say, okay, God has a great, grand, beautiful intention for couples. It's marriage, not divorce. And oh, there goes humanity again. They screwed it up. But marriage, God's intent. Divorce, humanity's sin. So Jesus is saying is marriage is not to be entered lightly, period. In other words, there is no such thing, this will really hurt the Pharisees, but there is no such thing as a pure, sinless divorce. <laughs> it's sin that brings a couple to that spot. And it may be sin for one or both parties to divorce, period. It's what happens when we live in a world where God's intent is harmony in marriage, but humanity is prone to sin and to divorce. Second conclusion I will draw is that to use Mark 10, 11 through 12 as a rod of correction and rebuke to divorced couples is to do harm to this passage's original intent. There are so many specific situations in which divorce is being considered. And to be a Pharisee to a couple who eventually does divorce does not help. Period. Here's what I mean. I will champion marriage as long as I can. I'm giving counseling, of course. In the same way, I will tell an alcoholic to not drink as long as I possibly can. But then to tell an alcoholic who drinks and then drives and hurts somebody else, hey, see what drinking does? Does that ever help? The same way, if I were to tell a couple whose papers are signed, separate living quarters are being lived in, and one flesh is severed back into two, and they're going different directions, to say to them, hey, that was horrible, you shouldn't have done that, and furthermore, Jesus says you're in sin for considering remarriage, that just doesn't help. 
We live in a broken world. We live in a world where I fail many times in following God's law. So to hold this law up to broken, sinful human beings and say, follow this one. And like all laws in the Bible, it is desirable, it is strivable, and in a perfect world, by the grace of God and the power of His Holy Spirit, it is doable. But by the grace of God, may we have grace, love, understanding, and godly direction when people have taken a sinful direction and are now in a world that is compromised, not what God had intended, but surely not past God's gracious redemption. If you are remarried or divorced, this isn't a time of guilt or asking what ifs or asking did I do enough because the past is what it is. This is a time of learning what Jesus says marriage is, and if you're following God, he will show you what repentance looks like now, not what repentance would have looked like then. Maybe he will show you that, but does that mean you can do that? See, for the wrongs that you can right right now, what can you do? May God give you the grace and the guidance to repent and draw closer to him. And for those of us who are on the outside looking in, May God give us the spirit of Jesus, and not the spirit of a Pharisee. Let's pray. Father, sometimes there are certain sins in our culture and our society that really, for whatever reason, get our attention because it's such a poignant reminder of what a broken world that we live in. And Father, oftentimes we are quick to point the finger and want to fix that sin, but how many sins in our own lives that just because they're not as well seen, such as the Pharisees, that we manage to look over and forget those and don't take too much conviction to that. Father, marriage is such a beautiful thing. We're glad that you created it. We long to see it to take place in the lives and the reality of the lives of those around us. Father, like all sin, we severely hate divorce. But we do live in a broken world. Help us to gracefully navigate through waters of those who are struggling with these problems. Help us to know what to say and what not to say. Help us to know where we can be your hands and your feet. We ask you all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.